You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, here all. Hello, David. Hi, Will. And hello to all of our listeners out there. This is a very special episode of the Common Descent Podcast. We are celebrating Snake Month. Woo! All throughout the month of July, we've been doing snake-themed stuff. This episode, we are going to be focusing on modern snakes, a little bit unusual for us. Yep. And snake conservation with our special guest, Hiral Nike. Hiral, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, please, before we get into the sort of main stuff of our discussion... Go ahead and introduce yourself briefly for our listeners. Cool. Okay, so here's a short version. I'm Hirol Nike. Um, I'm currently based in South Africa, originally from Zimbabwe. And yeah, I'm a herpetologist that specializes um, on snakes. Doesn't mean that I don't like lizards and turtles and frogs. <laughs> <laughs> but snakes are just a little bit special. Agreed. And yeah, I'm doing my PhD on snakes and specifically on snake bite trying to understand venomous snakes. You know, there's long been this fear of snakes, and so it's exciting to be getting to the bottom of it. And yes, I also do some conservation work with a nonprofit organization, which I'll speak about a little bit later. And uh, we do some education work, and it's, it's very exciting. Cool. Very cool. We are very excited to talk more about all of those things. Let's start with, so you work with snakes. Obviously, that's why you're here. That's why I'm so excited to have you as a guest <laughs> on our podcast. Uh, what does that look like? What, what kind of work do you do with snakes? So I work for a nonprofit organization called Save the Snakes. Um, they are based in Sacramento, California. And the main mission of Save the Snakes is to mitigate human snake conflict on a global level. And... Uh, my work through Save the Snakes as the Africa Program Manager, I have set up a project in South Africa where we specifically focus community engagement and education in rural communities. So here I've partnered with an organization called Hoodsprayed Reptile Center. It's a snake park that already does existing snake education and reptile education. And the reason for this partnership is, um, you know, two organizations are stronger than just one. And so we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to strengthen our efforts through this shared partnership. Gotcha. Yeah. It's so interesting that right off the bat, uh, so you work with conservation and then you said that the work you do is on snakebite. And I think that it might not be immediately obvious to people why snakebite and venomous snakes is so important on the concept of conservation. But I guess it's because if you're talking about conservation, what you're talking about is snake-human relationships. Exactly. And, and in fact, my PhD on snakes and snake bite came out of some of my work with um, Save the Snakes. You know, I've always had this interest in snakes, and snakes are absolutely fascinating but I always felt like, you know, I wanted to apply the, the academic work that I do in a real world setting. And so for those of you that don't know, in 2017, the WHO, the World Health Organization, 
declared snake bite a neglected tropical disease. And what a lot of people might not know is, you know, we don't actually know why snake bite is so so prominent in certain regions and not others. And we also don't know the role of snakes um, in snake bite. So their behaviors and their distributions, there's very limited knowledge in, in how this actually relates to the occurrence of snake bites. And so a lot of my PhD work is trying to investigate this in, in a South African setting um, and then hopefully ap- applying this uh, throughout the rest of Africa. That's fascinating. The The idea of thinking of snake bite as a disease, as a tropical disease, is really interesting, uh, in part because you have to imagine that gets a new realm of people interested in it. Yeah. And now you're getting more of a medical lean to the, the sort of impetus to study this. Yeah. But I imagine that must be so hard. It makes me think of uh, like cancer, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about mm-hmm. cancer and people talk about curing cancer. But reality, cancer is a whole list of different diseases. Yeah, it's a not spectrum one spectrum of conditions. Right. Snake bites got to be very similar. You know, all, different groups of snakes have different venoms with different impacts. So it yeah. must be very difficult to try to treat it as a disease. Well, yeah. Different parts of the world with different habitats and different groups of people. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, as the name suggests, like most of the tropical regions are very affected, very much affected but it doesn't mean that snake bite doesn't occur in, you know, parts of the United States or Australia, for example. I think in, in areas like that, even in South Africa, we've just got better um, medical facilities that can deal with it. And, mm-hmm. I, and so I think you, you know, you don't think about these things unless you, you're working with other members, other um, medical professionals that will actually tell you that, yes, actually in, Somewhere like Nigeria, the issue is is in fact that they don't have antivenom or that you know their medical facilities are not equipped to deal with snake bites. Yeah, that that is always an interesting part of it here in the U.S. In that we have venomous snakes and people do get bitten, like rattlesnake bites or not. Oh yeah, it happens. That happens. I don't know all the time. I don't know what the numbers are, but a lot. That happens a lot. It's very common. People's pets get bitten all the time. Sure, sure. But we also have a very short list of venomous snakes here in the U.S., and we know them, and our hospitals are prepared for them. So it's like, I don't, I haven't heard about a venomous snake death in the U.S. in quite some time. Yeah, it's very easy here in the U.S. to sort of, uh, it's almost tempting to diminish people's concerns about venomous snakes, because you can say, well, yeah, like the average number, I think, of venomous snake deaths in the u.s per year is like five Mm -hmm. and usually there's some kind of condition that that leads to that this is a complication a perfectly healthy person most of the time but uh when you look at other parts of the world that are have different snakes and different availability to medical facilities it can be much more dramatic Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's and and that's the thing i think um you know, working with other herpetologists, we've now come to realize that, in fact, you know, it's it's not just the the medical side that actually needs this, you know, huge focus when it comes to snake bite, but rather the snakes itself. You know, nobody's, or rather, they, you know, I think in the past there hasn't been as much of an interest from the academic side, simply because, you know, if it's a disease, you know, it's kind of put into the category of 
of medicine and, you know, you don't necessarily touch on it. But it's, it's quite exciting because a lot more herpetologists are now trying to understand the venom variation in different snakes. I'll take the African continent as an example. You know, the continent itself is huge, but we have something like um, a black mamba kind of distributed quite broadly. But the impact of a bite in South Africa very much differs to the bite impact in somewhere, you know, in, in Central um, Africa. And so it's important to understand that um, venom in snakes is largely driven by the type of prey that they eat. And the prey availability is going to differ in Central Africa compared to the Southern Africa. So these sorts of things are factors that, you know, haven't really been considered in the past. But now we're trying to really get into the ecology of it. And I think for me personally, that's the more exciting part of it. Yeah. So in your work, how often do you get to actually go out and find snakes and interact with wild snakes, as opposed to time spent in a lab or looking at uh, preserved specimens or things like that? So I'm very lucky because I am based in the northeastern region of South Africa. So it's quite close to the Kruger National Park, which is quite wild. And so I'm, I'm in kind of the middle of the wilderness where we do, even at the snake park itself, we have this little hub where uh, we have wild snakes coming through all the time. I mean, there's a baby Mozambique spitting cobra that kind of hangs around my house occasionally. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and when we don't find snakes in and around us, uh, we go on snake rescues quite often. So, we, you know, these specifically things like black mambas, and Mozambique spitting cobras are quite common in my area. And, you know, you'll, we'll often get call outs because, you know, there's a black mamba in somebody's thatched roof or a Mozambique spitting cobra in, in somebody's bathroom. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's quite a dynamic relationship actually living with snakes. And, and it directly relates to the kind of work that we do, you know, in terms of promoting this kind of harmonious living with with snakes and and i think that really makes my work personally quite you know it's exciting um but more than that it feels like there's more of a purpose to to the work that i'm doing Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's not direct yeah you're not sitting in your own little scientist area separated from all the people of the world (laughs) Mm -hmm. you're actually out there interacting with, with people and with wildlife that's really cool yeah What's so interesting to me to hear you talk about your work with snakes over there is that it's very easy, again, from our sort of North American perspective, I think it's very easy for people to intuitively understand that wildlife is different in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But usually when you think about that, you're thinking like, well, yeah, we've got mountain lions and bison and wolves. And in Africa, you might see hyenas and elephants and African wildlife. But it, it, this is another one of those things that might be under the radar for some people that the snakes are totally different. Yeah, you can't just say, yeah, everywhere's got snakes. While that right. is true. <laughs> like here, the most common and most famous of our venomous snakes, like the ones you are told to look out for most more often than anything else here in North America are rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have tons of rattlesnakes, but you don't have any rattlesnakes over there. Yeah. No. 
right? You're you're dealing with completely different things that to us, you said a cobra. Yeah. Which to us is such an odd thing to hear someone saying that they have it around their house. Yeah, that's, that's a completely different <laughs> ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, the closest we have is something, is a puff adder. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, again, you know, it's it's just another viper. But, um, you know, it's, it's quite different when you're working with different, uh, with snakes that actually have their own different behaviors. So, you know, vipers will do behave very differently to elapids and, and understanding the relationship that these different snakes share within a community out in the wildlife, um, out in the wilderness is, is also very different. And I think that's one of my favorite things about working with snakes is that it's, there's no one size fits all. You know, each snake in every region is very different and it's so important to understand the role that they have within each different environment. Absolutely. Well, and, and that was one thing that was standing out in my brain when talking about how it's, you know, being classified as a, as a disease and looking at it from that standpoint is very interesting. But also, it is very unique among diseases in that, you know, like, it, but different bacteria have different ways they quote unquote behave, that they attack certain cells more than others and they tend to focus on different parts of the body. But like, they don't have brains, and these do. These have you know, actual responsive behavior and personalities. And personalities, and you know, it's like here there are snakes that definitely have worse reputation. Like a water moccasin has a worse reputation a lot of times because they are a bit more aggressive in their displaying and their reactions, so people are more afraid of them quite often. But also, it gives you one of the rare opportunities where this is a disease that does not want to inflict itself upon you. Right. It does not actually want to <laughs> bite you. It is something has gone wrong when that happens. <laughs> so it's a, it's studying that behavior really is, uh, a, a, like you were saying, a fascinating part, but also a very unique part to treating this as a as a uh, an epidemic isn't the right word, but a uh, uh, illness. Uh, contagion yeah. <laughs> yeah so have you gotten to do i know that you uh it, it sounds like you've actually lived in a handful of different places uh over the years have you gotten to work with snakes in different countries in different regions so i actually haven't um i've mostly done most of my work with snakes in south africa okay just as a side thing i did go to peru for a little while to work as a research assistant but I mostly focused on frogs there. Um, of course, I did um, keep an eye out for, for snakes, but um, we were quite far up in the nor- in the cloud forests, and it was far too cold for mm. for most snakes. Gotcha. Do you have a like a dream snake vacation? <laughs> Is there a part of the world or a group of snakes that you've not gotten to see that you want to go see? Oh, so many, so many. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully uh, later this year, um, I have a trip planned with Save the Snakes to Costa Rica. And that is very top of my list. So all things, if all things go well, um, that trip should happen. And yeah, I mean, you know, everything from pit vipers to to the glass frogs. It's a it's a very, yeah, it's a dream location for most, I think. Yeah. 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 I think any group of animals you want to study, Costa Rica is probably a good place to <laughs> to go see some. To, to at least make a stop at. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So you've brought it up a couple times now that you work with an organization called Save the Snakes, uh, which is actually how we found you originally when we were looking for people to be on this episode of the podcast. Tell us a bit more about Save the Snakes and what they do. Okay, so Save the Snakes, quite a new organization. It was only founded in 2017, just a little bit before, you know, snake bite was actually declared a neglected tropical disease. But the main purpose of Save the Snakes, the main mission is is really to support conservation efforts around the world um, that focus on mitigating human snake conflict. So the you know the the structure of Save the Snakes itself is that we have a grants program through which we get funding to support various projects. And and what started off as um, you know just initially starting off just kind of getting an idea of what kind of organizations are out there and how we can support them. I think what's ended up happening is that a lot we've we've had so much interest in in this specific aspect. And what we've learned is that there's so many projects out there that focus on on you know human snake conflict and mitigating that kind of conflict. So I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but we've got projects that we support in in Nepal in Brazil, in Ecuador. We've got three main um, projects that we run directly under the Save the Snakes umbrella. The one is currently in California, which the executive director of Save the Snakes, Michael Starkey, currently runs. And again, the you know large part of that focuses on educating schools and, and communities about snakes and, and why they're important. Uh, we also have a project currently running in Zambia, and then there's the project in South Africa, which I currently run. And, and this project is called Snake Education and Community Awareness Program. And this, this kind of global structure really allows us to get a perspective of, you know, human snake conflict globally. And, and what we've realized is that every country differs when it comes to um, you know, obviously the people, but, but the way we have to kind of communicate our like lesson plans, um, and our main messages. And so it's, it's important that we, you know, have, um, a group of people that is on board with sharing the experiences, wanting to learn about, you know, how they can improve. And actually building a, a global community where we can, you know, not only mitigate human snake conflict, but ultimately reduce snake bites. Man, I have so many more questions right. I want to ask about that. But before I do, I want to <laughs> zero in on this uh, human snake conflict. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about conservation for snakes, usually when we talk about conservation for animals, we're always, you know, it's always we want to protect these animals. We want them to thrive. We want them to avoid persecution and decline. In the case of snakes, there is also this flip side of it that we're also kind of trying to protect people, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. right? A lot of conservation projects, when we're saying, oh, we want to conserve black-footed ferrets, you know, no per no one, no person is in danger. Nope. Uh, well, I guess the plague, but like other than that, <laughs> black-footed ferrets are not a danger to people. So what, what does snake-human conflict look like? And, and why is it such a problem in so many places? 
So this is a very interesting question, um, especially posed to a, an academic um, and someone who comes from an academic background, because, you know, so much of what we do as scientists focuses on on, on literature, finding, you know, the science of it, working in, in the field. But we don't necessarily, you know, work with people so much. And so that social aspect is very important. And that's something, you know, I've come to learn. And so the key aspect of it is how you build relationships with people. Because at the end of the day, even to protect snakes, you, you're going to have to change people's mindsets. Mm -hmm. And the only way that's going to happen is, you know, if you can really build these successful relationships where people from different communities can actually trust you. And, you know, I don't just mean rural communities, but, you know, the public, people that live all around us. The fear of snakes has been around for a really long time. And I think you'll, you'll find that it's, it's kind of a, a chance encounter of meeting somebody who might like snakes or who, who might, you know, have this, um, raging fear of snakes. And so, yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned a lot is, is how to build these successful relationships with people. No, I think that's a, a really good point that you made about the academic versus the social. Because so often with a lot of other conservation things, like you were saying with blackfooted ferrets or like, you know, you know, the whole issue of animals not being able to cross highways. Mm -hmm. you say, All right. Well, we can study, you know, what is the problem? Where are the issues? And we can think, hey, if we put a bridge, that'll help these animals. That's a very academic engineering approach to the problem. It's very analytical. It's very logical. But when you're dealing with a conservation issue that's mainly driven by antagonistic behavior between humans and the animal the thing you have to deal with is that people a lot of people hate snakes have been raised to hate snakes so that you're dealing with a a social issue a emotional yeah and it isn't always logical exactly yeah there is not logic driving it for a lot of people it's because i've known tons of people and if you say why do you dislike snakes the answer basically sums up because I dislike snakes. Because they're snakes. Because <laughs> I don't like them. Because I don't like them, and that's about as that's about as far as that conversation can go. Because they ha they don't have a logical or even a, an experience. That's just how they've been raised. So it's a it's a really good point that you can't approach this from the same scientific, clean clinical analysis that so many other conservation efforts might be able to be handled. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, throughout this entire project that we've set up, so we only started our education project here in South Africa in January 2021. And, I mean, I've had experience in, in doing education and things before. But specifically with these rural communities, what you tend to realize is most of them focus on this academic and this, um, this school curriculum that's just defined by the government, you know, whatever the government mm -hmm. says, you do. And, and and most of us have gone through that system. And when it comes to nature education and learning about wildlife, I mean, most of these communities live very close to, to the Kruger National Park and in, in pure wilderness, but they don't understand, you know, their relationship with the, with nature and wildlife around it. And so it, it becomes very critical to incorporate what they're learning 
with kind of our our lesson plans on snakes. You know, it's it's not just about, you know, snakes are important. It's about relating it to to the environment that they live in. And, you know, just speaking about lesson plans, even in, in the general education system, it's not that common for us to learn about reptiles or, uh, you know, a lot of these animals that are... I want to say less less charismatic. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll learn about the big five wildlife. You'll learn about the big the big animals that are you know very common. But when it comes to these smaller animals and how uh, what their role is in in the ecosystem, um, we only tend to learn about it later on in life. And if you don't do biology at university or in college, then you're you you know you're just going to pick it up from from different people that you talk to. And so what you then realize is that there's actually this mass population that is completely uneducated about snakes, even the simple role of what, you know, what kind of things that snakes eat. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's kind of where the problem is. Yeah. I mean, we, we experience, I think, pretty much the same thing over here mm-hmm. is that it, there's a general lack of understanding of these animals and it leads to that question, and, and, and this question comes up in conservation all the time, and I'm sure it comes up with snakes, is that question of why would we want to save them anyway? Yeah. yeah uh, what, what good do they do? What, right. what, what points do they have? Exactly. What yeah. is their purpose? Well, it's like when people talk about mosquitoes. Yep. And we say, well, mosquitoes are disease vectors, and someone will come along and go, well, why don't we just wipe out every mosquito, and then the problem is solved. And I'm sure there are people, you know, we hear... It's a very uh, cliche comment here uh, to hear from people that say the only good snake is a dead snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there's, a, you know, some version of that where you are as well. So what uh, and, I, you know, obviously the education is not something that happens in two minutes. <laughs> but for the two minute version, how do you explain it to people? What do you say and how do you get that across when you're trying to explain no, these these are animals that are important for us to protect. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So our our education model specifically focuses, um, at least on on our schools that we visit. We have this kind of two visit model where you know we we go to them for the first time and we discuss simple things like you know what makes a snake different to to, for example, a lizard, um, why snakes are important, what kind of myths have been spread around and, and why they're not true, you know, why, what to do if someone has been bitten by a snake, because that's quite an important one in a lot of communities as well, especially because a lot of them are, you know, used to going to traditional healers, which are, is a whole other topic um, altogether. And so, you know, putting this all together and, and then kind of showing them why snakes are actually quite cool, their important role in the environment. We, we kind of hope to get that initial engagement. We even created this little video that's available on our Save the Snakes YouTube channel, which was kind of put together by someone who does stop motion. And so it's this little, you know, people-friendly, kid-friendly video that shows that, you know, snakes eat rats and mice, and snake venom is used to create medicine, and, and you know, snakes themselves are actually e- eaten by 
birds and other mammals. And, and so there's this whole food chain. And, and, you know, this is why the snake's actually important. And, and you know, it, it actually goes quite a long way in helping the, the you know, the, the school kids just get a better idea of snakes. And then we also um, take three different snakes and do a snake demonstration. And this is so that they can actually understand the actual behavior of snakes. And I think this interaction and seeing a live snakes, snake, a venomous snake that, you know, somebody else is obviously a trained handler is handling, they start to see snakes in a completely different light. Mm -hmm. And so when we go to them for the second time, we try and focus a lot more on, you know, the biology of it. Like, you know, snakes do things like shed their skin because they're growing, you know, you know, Southern African python also look after their babies like a lot of rattlesnakes do. And, and, you know, these kinds of things really help them in, in, in trying to understand and learn about snakes a little bit more. So yeah, that really, really helps us. And, and so, uh, we do, um, surveys before we do our talks and then after our second visit. And so that we can actually collect this data on how these students are, what their perceptions are. And I think yeah. for me personally, that's been a really invaluable way of actually understanding how effective our efforts are. Yeah, it's so important. Programs like that, because we've done, we've both worked mm -hmm. in places where you do animal shows and you, you know, introduce people to animals. It is so valuable to introduce people to animals as animals. Yes. Because when you have a group like snakes, this is also the case for things like sharks or mm -hmm. bats or spiders, a lot of these kinds of animals, where people have this image in their head, and whether they realize it or not, of a monster. Yeah, it's a caricature of that animal. Right, of a, of a force of nature that has come out of some ancient mythology or something. <laughs> and when you're able to show them and say, yeah, look, this is its how it uses its senses and it's growing and that's why it sheds its skin and yeah, just... And this and, is just an animal. And just be like, and this is Susie. Right, yeah, exactly. Like, this is this is Bob. This <laughs> yes. is just This is Bob the Python. And just this. an individual animal. I am fascinated to know what kind of snakes you use for your show and tell when you're introduced. Because here, usually some of the most common snakes that will be used in things like that will be like corn snakes mm -hmm. and king snakes. Ball pythons are really common because they're common in the pet trade. Yep. What do, what snakes do you use to introduce people to snakes? So so we use three venomous snakes. We use the puff adder to show obviously the puffing behavior, but also um, it's a snake that really wants to kind of hide away. It's not going to come and come to strike you purposely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so so that's one of the snakes uh, that we use. Also because with puff adders, a lot of people you know believe that if you're standing about a meter away, that the snake is just going to suddenly come and, and strike at you. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, we show them how docile the snake really is. And then we, so we also use a boomslang, which is a tree snake. Yeah. <laughs> Will and I, both of our faces lit up when you said that. <laughs> boomslang, such a cool snake. That's awesome. It's one of my favorite snakes. And, and I think the reason for it is also because they're so docile and, and most people have this idea of, um, you know, when often in, in, in the area that I'm based in, if people see the snake 
that lives in a tree, they immediately think of it as a mamba, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially a, a greenish color, which, you know, boomslang, the male boomslang have this greenish color. And so we make it a point to tell the learners that, you know, actually we, in our area, we don't actually get green mambas. And so the defining feature is this big eye that the boomslang have. And so in, during the demonstration process, we also show that if you show the boomslang a branch in a tree, it's going to want to climb up instead of trying to attack the person. Mm -hmm. So that's um, a, an, an exciting snake. Um, and then we also use a snouted cobra. And it's very interesting using the snouted cobra because uh, the snouted cobras obviously get quite, quite big, quite long. And the, the, the learners are immediately scared because there's this huge snake coming out of the bucket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we put the snake under a hide and, and then show that actually, you know, when the snake spreads its hood, it's actually doing that because it, you know, it's just trying to defend itself. And then we'll compare it to, for example, the Mozambique spitting cobra, which is a spitting snake, and then, you know, differentiate between the two. And I think... Um, Having these three different snakes to compare because each different one has different type of venom as well, it um, it helps them to differentiate and, and understand that actually, you know, it's not just one type of snake. There's so many different types of snakes and they're actually not not that scary. And so we also do a an interaction with the non-venomous snake. So we do have like ball pythons and things at the at the snake park. Mm -hmm. So we'll often use one of the ball pythons that we have as well. Cool. The thing I really like about the approaches that you've listed out is with the snake demonstrations, it's show, not just tell. Because so often when you're trying to teach people about a misunderstood group of animals or a, dis you know, a, a disliked group of animals, you can say, hey, a shark doesn't actually want to eat you as many times as you want. And people will just be like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> Whatever you say, buddy. It, it just, it sounds like propaganda to them. So it, it doesn't click mm -hmm. as truth until they see someone in the water with a shark. And the shark's completely being uninterested. You know, same thing with the snakes showing that these behaviors are all defensive. The snake would ultimately like us to leave them alone. You know, you can't refute that as just... You know, well, that's your opinion. Well, no, the snake's there doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah, it's, and and the other part I really liked when you are saying is that the, the education, a lot of what you were mentioning was just focusing on understanding the animal. Just, you know, not, not even trying to push the, the you know, uh, uh, heavy-handed conservation messages. Just, hey, do you want to know what a snake eats? Do you want to know how they work? Do you want to know where they live? Because that sort of understanding is... it dissipates the myths but it also can hopefully nurture interest and as soon as you're interested then you care about the animal as soon as you care about the animal you don't want it to die right and that's that i so i, I really appreciate the approaches you all are using because they're they're key 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 parts of conservation that I'll, that i don't think always get realized or considered so often it feels like the the main goal must be emphasizing what we need to do to save the snake and why we should save the snake but that doesn't always connect with people the same way as just understanding the animal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember, I think I've mentioned this story on the podcast before, but a friend of mine, their mom moved to Arizona yep, a yep. while ago and got there and was terrified of meeting a rattlesnake. And she was like, what do I do? Oh my goodness, there's going to be rattlesnakes. 
what do I do if I meet one? And, and I happened to be there when they were talking and I said, go the other way. Yeah. If you see a rattlesnake, walk the other way. And she, she, I could tell she did not believe me. She was like, no, I can't well, I turn my back on it. You know, yes, I can right? walk away. It's going to come after me and all this. Give it the perfect after opportunity to strike. <laughs> and I tried to explain. I gave all the reasons. Here's all the reasons. And I could see her thinking about it, but she, it didn't actually click. And then a few weeks later, my friend told me that uh, their mom had encountered a snake, saw a rattlesnake, walked away, didn't get attacked and was like, oh, my goodness, it worked. <laughs> and that was the moment that clicked. Having that actual experience, that that actual interaction yeah. really helps it drive it home so well in a way that just talking about it can't do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when uh, we get called out to rescue snakes from even someone's garden. Now, like I mentioned, you know, we live in a, a wild part of the, the world, wild part of South Africa, where, you know, we have eco estates. You're literally living next to wildlife. That means mm -hmm. that snakes are going to be there. And, and no jokes, we've been called to rescue a black mamba out of a tree, you know, just outside somebody's house. It's, it's in a tree. It's going to go away. But, but this yep. is the thing. People are so petrified that, you know, they, they just think that the snake is suddenly going to come into their house and attack them or whatever the case is. Um, so when, when we go to, uh, so when we're presented with such circumstances, we encourage the people to actually sit and observe the behavior of mm -hmm. the snake. Um, you know, what is it go doing? Like moving from one tree to another tree. Is it trying to find something to eat? You know, these are, I think they don't realize how much at an advantage that they are. Um, because, I mean, a lot of scientists would would kill for an opportunity to just sit and see the snake going around yes. doing its thing. I'm super jealous. Yeah. When you said that someone sees a mamba in a tree. I'm like, what? I want to see a mamba in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> What's rent prices like there? <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, here's a question. So I, I th this is a, co a topic that I comes up a lot with conservation, and I suspect it will have come up in our Crocs episode, uh, <laughs> which we haven't recorded yet, but which our listeners will have already listened to by the time this comes out. Yes. Oftentimes when we talk about people's interactions with certain wildlife, there is a difference between sort of modern interactions and then the historical interactions that might still be common for indigenous groups it's very common to hear well uh, this is an indigenous group of people this is a, a population of people who have been here for many many generations who have learned to coexist with the wildlife and who don't have the same issues that we do is is there is that the case uh in your part of the world is that the case in south africa are there communities like that that either you have to approach differently or is there an indigenous sort of long historical human snake relationship that might be different from what we think of more common, more, more general perspective. So it's very, again, it's, it's very diverse. Even in, in some communities, there's, and I, I'm not sure what kind of drives it, but for example, in South Africa, you know, we've got a huge diversity in the native population. Um, and, it's very interesting to try to understand what kinds of things that they believe in. A lot of them are religious and, and, you know, simply believe that, you know, because the Bible says that 
snakes are evil, snakes are bad. Mm-hmm. But I think it comes it comes from a lot of like a lot of the myths, for example, that have been shared. We find that people just kind of start a rumor and then it kind of becomes this myth that everybody's afraid of. You know, if, you know, someone saw a snake in the middle of the night and, you know, there were these big eyes that were glowing and, and they were scared that it was a snake and now they suddenly believe that these snakes are coming out at night and scaring people. And so we have a lot of that kind of, I guess, belief in why snakes are, are, I guess, in this, this, having this fear of snakes. Um, but to my knowledge, I think there might be in, in probably in parts of Central Africa where there's a lot more of these indigenous communities, they probably do have certain belief systems. But I think, um, what I've personally realized is that because they're more, like more and more of the global popu- population is becoming either educated or there's a lot more development. A lot of the belief systems kind of change based on, on people and what, you know, other people are saying and doing rather than the belief in this traditional knowledge that people have shared over the years. That, that gotcha. does make sense because so many of the messages about snakes are, like you mentioning the rumor thing, made me think of how a huge part of the issue isn't just, you know, oh, do you live near venomous snakes? Then you, your popu- your community probably has a bad opinion. It's like people who have never met a venomous snake in their life have opinions about venomous snakes because TV, video games, books, you know, the book, and any other form of media you can think of so commonly have allegories and stories and characters that are evil, terrible, scary snakes. So that even if you're just getting exposed to media from other parts of the world or other communities, you could start to, that could shift your opinion on snakes very, very easily. Oh, yeah. And I, I guess myths and rumors uh, permeate through cultural lines mm-hmm. very easily. Uh, through cultural barriers even if you're just interacting with people who grew up watching those movies yep. or books or whatever no it's and so much of it can be subconscious that's something i think about all the time of like uh even in just like the general education system they they don't have a chapter that is here's why snakes are evil but it's it's very likely that if you show a clip of a documentary and it's one of the ones where they play scary music when the snake shows up mm-hmm. it's just subconsciously you go all right noted that's right that's the bad one right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that you your research focuses on snakes in addition to conservation efforts and your educational programming. What do, do you have a specific a special group of snakes? Are you specialized in a particular type of snake? So for my research I'm focusing on medically important snakes. Some of the, you know, the top snakes that are featured the most in snake bite, specifically in South Africa. So the, the World Health Organization has this big list of medically, medically important venomous snakes in different countries. And while a lot of this, this list needs to be updated, the main purpose of having this kind of list is to be able to learn more about, you know, which are the snakes that are considered to be biting people the most. So for my research, I'm focusing on 
you know, the black mamba, the Mozambique spitting cobra, um, puff adder, the snouted cobra, and then two other snakes, the stiletto snake <gasps> and um, <laughs> the rhombic night adder, which are two other snakes that are also featured in snake bite, um, not as prominently as the other four. And that's in my region. Um, the Cape Cobra is another snake that is in the western parts of South Africa that does cause a lot of bites as well. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's quite interesting because even when it comes to just general ecology and behavior of these specific snakes, we don't actually know a lot. And so that's what I'm hoping to learn a little bit more about. So just to give you an idea, I mean, I'm... I'm looking at everything from distribution of these snakes in relation to climate change and, um, you know, changing environments, a, a kind of quantitative, a qualitative aspect of my research is, is also trying to get data from hospitals and um, trying to do interviews with, with farmers and with doctors to try and get their perspective on, on snake bites, you know, when it comes to snake bites that they have treated and then the last bit of my research really focuses on on the behavior of these venomous snakes. Um, so I'm specifically looking at, at defensive striking and, you know, like what are the circumstances under, under which these snakes want to bite people? You know, is it just kind of random? Is it, you know, when you're trying to hold the snake, trying to capture the snake, trying to kill the snake? Um, and so, yeah, I'm just setting up these different scenarios we will be testing how these snakes react to um, different things that are presented to them. That's fascinating. Well, and it's it's so cool that the snakes you're studying overlap with the snakes that you're using for education messages and programs. Yeah, because that allows you that it's it's so cool to think, and your audience might not even re- realize this, but that here's a person running this program teaching you about this species of cobra or about uh, this species of venomous snake telling you about their behavior in a way that basically no one else in the world could explain (laughs) this behavior this is the person who studies this snake's behavior that is that that's a great opportunity for your learners but it's also such a great opportunity for a scientist to have to be able to do this research and observe this snake and make observations and take notes and then turn around and present that information yes. directly to a, a, a more general audience. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I've learned more in terms of, you know, like probably I'd say intellectual growth in, in this specific area of work because of this work both in a social setting but also in a, in a more scientific setting. And part of trying to tackle snake bite on this global scale um, at the moment, like the big push is trying to use this transdisciplinary approach where, you know, we have people with scientists, herpetologists, um, we have sociologists, people that are, you know, experts in, in education and, and social behavior, but also healthcare professionals. And, you know, us all putting our minds together and then coming up with solutions. And, and for me personally, it's so incredible to be able to work in a space where we can hear these different perspectives and, and then come up with solutions in a way that hasn't really been done before. Mm-hmm. Very cool. 
that's such an exciting thing to be a part of. It's it's really exciting and encouraging to hear this kind of work getting done, uh, especially in various parts of the world, especially that there is a global aspect to it, that there, there this is multi-organizational, multidisciplinary. Do you ever end up working alongside other conservation efforts? So, for example, in Africa, obviously, there are lots of endangered animals in Africa. Uh, You've got all those wonderful megafauna that do so horribly in a world uh, overrun with humans. Do you ever end up working alongside other conservation efforts? Do do you ever end up having like snakes alongside, you know, vultures or whatever is sort of a a shared message? So a very interesting question, because the uh, location where I am based is kind of a conservation hub. Um, So I'm also based in a biosphere reserve. Um, and the people that run it are the Kruger Canyon Biosphere Reserve. But there's multiple different organi- uh, conservation organizations that work here as well. The Endangered uh, Wildlife Trust, they've got projects on vultures and, and hornbills. There's an organization called Elephants Alive. They obviously do a lot of work with elephant wildlife conflict. Um, and, um, and yes, so our goal is to kind of partner with these organizations where we can. And we found that this kind of um, younger generation, um, you know, a lot of these conservationists between, you know, in the early 30s, we've all got this shared drive towards collaboration. And a lot of us, you know, don't see the point in going to the same community and doing two different types of education with the same kind of, you know, outcome. If we put our minds together, we can get people to understand that, you know, it's not just elephants or snakes, it's biodiversity and how these snakes um, and elephants interact in the same environment. And so, I mean, you know, we haven't implemented any projects with the Elephants um, Alive organization, but with several other organizations, you know, our goal is to partner with them rather than setting up a different initiative altogether. And, and I'm sure you go, you'll talk about challenges a little bit later on. But I think one of the biggest challenges when it comes to probably organizations trying to work together is, um, is funding and, um, you know, trying to understand where the funding is going to go. If there's a better approach, if you, you know, approach a funder together, apply for a grant together. And I think we're still in the next couple of years trying to, in the conservation community, trying to get our heads around that kind of dynamic. Um, I think we're, we're headed in the right direction, especially with, with a lot more people trying to collaborate with others. And just, you know, in general, like, I think a lot more people can see that what we're all trying to do is just, you know, conserve our habitats um, as much as we can and, and get people to understand exactly that as well. So... So yeah, I think, um, again, it's, it, you know, I think in, in the times that we live in, it's, it's great to be part of conservation efforts. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this sounds like, it sounds like a very exciting place to be, mm-hmm. to be part of conservation. Yeah. Now you brought up, uh, challenges and, and we discussed this, uh, ahead of the episode that one of the themes throughout our discussion here is sort of the joys and hurdles of snake conservation. Obviously, we've talked about a bit about both of those, but let's focus in on hurdles. What, beyond what we've already talked about, what what are some of the hardest things about 
being involved in snake conservation? What what is what are some of the biggest obstacles in the way of saving snakes, either for in your work personally, or if you'd prefer, just as a, gen, a general sense of snakes around the world? So I think it probably applies um, both globally and to my work. And the biggest of it is that snakes are not really a sexy species. You know, elephants, rhinos, they're going to get funding and they're going to get a lot more people interested in trying to protect them. We, you know, on a global scale, we also don't find as many threatened snakes in comparison to threatened mammals, for example. In fact, a new study came out, published in Nature, um, focuses on, you know, what what the deal is with with reptiles and and how much of them are threatened um, on a global scale and and so for example you know like we have you know black mambas are quite abundant so why does anybody want to fund a project on black mambas even though as a scientist i personally think they're fascinating and learning about their behavior is really important and so mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the biggest, biggest, biggest challenges, uh, and, and every snake biologist will tell you this, is that, you know, we don't have enough funding when it comes to working on snakes, whether that's from an academic point of view or from a conservation point of view. Now, we've been lucky in that we have received a few grants when we've, you know, for our, for our projects specifically, and, and that wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the education aspect. But, you know, with the education comes this need to learn more about behavior. Um, and one of the best ways to learn more about snakes is to track snakes mm-hmm. using radio telemetry. Um, but, you know, radio telemetry equipment is very expensive. So how are we supposed to do this? So, I mean, yeah, it's just something that's very challenging. And I think both as a snake conservationists and as a biologist it's very tricky to even go about trying to find funding you know are you supposed to approach private donors other conservationists other herpetologists are going to be in exactly the same boat so yeah I think that's that's one big challenge and then I think the 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 second biggest challenge is is probably just being patient or trying to be patient with people that have this this fear of snakes because yeah. you know some people with some people it, it's very easy and and they're a lot more understanding but a lot of the times you are going to meet people that simply do not care about snakes and are are just so scared that they even if you show them a picture of a snake on your phone they will be you know in the next room just petrified yeah. and so you know it's Coming from a background where, you know, you, you, le- you know, you learn about wildlife and, and, you know, it's so, it's so natural to kind of be inquisitive to learn more about an animal. You have to be very patient with a lot of other people. And, and I think it can be quite challenging. Also, because in, in a lot of communities, if you don't speak the same language, you know, you, the people are not going to get your message across. Or, or rather, they're not going to understand the message that you're trying to convey. And so it's important to be able to, one, be patient with others, but also then, like, teach yourself to be patient in such a situation and not, you know, not be angry 
in a situation where all you want to tell somebody is just come on look at <laughs> look at how great this this animal is right <laughs> right how can you not see how cool it is this is this is one of the things it's sort of a combination of two things it's very common for for scientists especially right that you learn so much you become so familiar with a topic you become an expert on something and it becomes easy to forget what it was like when you weren't an expert yeah uh, it, it becomes hard to bridge that gap between your knowledge and what is reasonable to expect of a you know the average person's knowledge but then especially when it's a topic like this where it's something that you feel very passionate about and your audience feels very passionate about but for different reasons a different kind of passion you know, for opposite reasons yeah <laughs> it can be very easy to get angry and to get frustrated and to encounter especially if you're in education and you're dealing with a general audience you are encountering the same misconceptions and the same misguided fears and and misunderstandings over and over and over again and i've known lots of scientists who really struggle with this and i you know i've really struggled with this in my own educational work that it could be really hard to you know the 70th time you hear somebody say the same misguided comment about snakes and justify it as a reason to not care about snakes it's really hard not to start yelling at a person yeah. <laughs> even though that's not their fault mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a real challenge in science and science education well emphasizing the patience I, I really appreciate that because uh there are it, it, very often you may come across people who have fundamentally different opinions not just of snakes but like i've come across people who just don't like animals pretty much like if it's not a dog or a cat right they don't want to have any like i'd bring out an armadillo which is you know not creepy like that's not a creepy crawly it's weird but it you know it's just a little coconut animal and i've had people who've been like don't bring that near me i right. don't want i don't want it any closer than you have it right now because it's because it's an animal i don't i don't trust animals and so just acknowledging that you that some people are coming from it from a fundamentally different experience and opinion and that yeah you have to be patient and accepting that that's where they are and you might not be able to reach them the same way and and you just have to kind of be as okay with that as you can be in the moment. Yeah, I remember I think the first time I ever encountered that 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 recognition of just thinking about animals differently. I I I was watching some YouTube video of some talk one of the late night talk shows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had Jimmy Fallon or one of those guys and they had a guest on who brought on a bunch of animals and the host was terrified of every animal that they brought on. Yep. And I was like, dude, that's a sloth. What yeah. are you <laughs> what are you freaking out about? That's so weird. And it was it was sort of the first time I had wrapped my mind around like, oh yeah, no, this is a person who just has a completely different perspective on what they expect an animal encounter to be. Yes. And it's so important to keep that in mind when you're when you're interacting with people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing that strikes me about uh the the challenges that you talked about this the challenge of getting people's support and getting funding and you know convincing people to lend their time and their support to these kinds of efforts is that in the long run 
I imagine it must be very comforting to think that if you're doing your job right, that will become easier and easier in the future. That as we are doing a better job educating our audience, and especially children, those children grow up to be the people that have the money and to be the private donors and to be uh, funding organizations. So ideally, if we are doing a good job educating our audience now, then the next generation of scientists will hopefully have a better time finding funding and finding support because they will be dealing with an audience, uh, dealing with donors who grew up better educated on this stuff. Absolutely. I mean, even even now, I think, what we what we lack in the snake conservation community are like enough people to do the job. You know, I'm doing the job of being like uh, a marketing agent and trying to plan these events and still doing my PhD. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I as one person am trying to do. I mean, it's a catch 22 because if there was another person, we could share the load. But at the same time, you know, we need to pay this person. We're not going to pay this person if we don't have the funds, of, you know, to pay this person. Right. And so I think, it, you know, like you said, you know, I think in, in this kind of by educating the current generation, we are kind of alleviating this pressure of just one person just focusing on, on various tasks. And, and I think it's quite common in conservation where you have these different people that are doing one job, but they're doing the job of like 10 people. And <laughs> yep. it's simply... <laughs> You know, it's it's not just that we don't have enough um, interested people, but we don't have a lot of people that, at least, you know, in for my personal opinion, in in South Africa, we we don't have a lot of people that are going to also then just take the risk and try something that has not been done before, because you know, a lot of people are looking for this life where they can be comfortable, which is completely understandable and when you work in the conservation world unless you work for a really you know prestigious or well-known organization it's a lot more challenging because you know there's this one person that's trying to then meet multiple people to convince them to try and get funding or it's a matter of doing a lot of this stuff on a volunteer basis as opposed to getting paid for it and Mm -hmm. I think there's a certain certain mindset that you need when it comes to working in in conservation for for wildlife because ultimately it's the sacrifice that you're making to protect the biodiversity and i think you know we have we have a lot more people that are trying to that understand why it's important to protect biodiversity and that's why you know i think conservation being done today is far better than it was being done 10 years ago. And and I think we're making progress. Um, and the more people that we educate, um, especially in in these communities, even if, you know, one of them wants to become a really wealthy businessman, if we tell them about the snake talk that we gave to them however many years ago, they'll be far more interested in helping out than somebody who's a businessman today that's not interested at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and, that, and that's that's a, such a great perspective to think about. It's 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 really important to think about because you have to see that progress because absolutely. otherwise it's just depressing. Well, it's it's to me it it's it's a core aspect of why I went into education because education is a 
that is a, a long-term solution and hopeful solution to many, many, many issues is that I'm hoping that by educating these children that they will grow up and have a you know slightly better understanding or more open-minded point of view toward whatever topic it was. And so as adults, they'll make decisions that will be you know, uh, more beneficial or more progressive in that category, or even that they just will raise kids that are less afraid of that animal oh, yeah. or talk to their friends. Yeah. That, or... it, that it just will, it just will, that it pushes the boulder a little bit further. Just, <laughs> it just, it inches it a little bit further with every person that goes, Oh, okay. Okay. No, that is kind of interesting. All yeah. right. That's a, that's an inch. Yep. That's an inch. <laughs> We're doing it. And so, yeah, that, that idea of just hoping that it, it will make things easier down the line. Uh, but I also absolutely sympathize with your point of just not enough people mm-hmm. that even if you have truly passionate, talented and well-trained and knowledgeable people who are doing a great job, if you've only got five of them, that, that it, it it is fundamental that you are going to be struggling to do what you need to do. Yeah conversations about conservation uh, it's very easy for them to be very sad and depressing because we're talking about animals in danger and people in danger and all the struggles of of doing it and i you know we don't want to diminish that because these are serious topics yes but obviously there is something to enjoy here because otherwise people like you here all wouldn't be doing it so let's uh, shift over to a slightly lighter uh, note Tell us about the joys of snake conservation. What is what is great about working in the field of trying to save and educate and research snakes? Changed perspectives and, and actually getting to see the changed perspectives like in, in front of my eyes. Um, you know, it's it's part of the reason why for our education model, you know, we, we wanted to do these surveys. And, you know, really looking at the facial expressions and so many of these learners um, and how that changes especially like um, it can be you know that they are super afraid at the beginning of our presentation and you know you have these these little girls or, or boys that are just so afraid but the more that we engage with them and and questions that we ask or encourage them to ask you know by the end of the session those are the the students that are you know raising their hands up trying to ask a question and and we specifically set out a time for Q&A to encourage them to ask any kind of questions that they might have you know one that we get quite uh, often is is anacondas in in Africa mm-hmm. and obviously this stems from you know watching movies and they're like oh okay anacondas are probably everywhere yeah exactly anybody of water <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my swimming pool yes. is, is a dangerous place yeah. And so that opens up this conversation between us and the learners and, and it allows, it allows for that growth in, in our relationship that we're trying to build. And, and it's so satisfying to be able to know that, you know, we made it a point to come to the school and educate this group of learners. Um, and especially when it comes to, you know, they don't, you know, to them, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a scientist or, or you're somebody else. Um, as long as the information that you're coming to tell is, you know, something that they can understand, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously, from our perspective, it's important that we, you know, convey the right information. But for them, it's it's about being curious about this group of people that's coming in and and teaching them about something quite exciting. So so yeah, I mean, as you know, working with with school kids is a lot easier than working with adults. Um, <laughs> that being said, even changed perceptions um, in in adults is very very exciting to see. So that's definitely one of the the joys of of working with snakes and in snake conservation. And then the other biggest joy I think for me personally is being able to be part of a a global community where we're all trying to protect snakes and and kind of teach people about snakes um, in the best way that we can while still learning from each other at the same time. Yeah. So so something I haven't mentioned is that I'm part of so in in 2020, Health Action International, it's a, a, a Dutch organization. Um, they created this campaign for uh, called Women Champions in Snake Bite. So they highlight women oh, no. specifically from different parts of the world. And so now we've got this community of snake bite champions that can share their experiences, the kind of education that they're doing. Um, what they've learned in the process of, of implementing their own projects. And I, this, this collaborative effort is so inspiring to be able to just carry out your own work. Because I think even on those days where you're just not feeling great, you know, and you just don't want to do what you're doing anymore, you just think about the fact that there's, you know, this whole, you're part of this global community of people that are doing this incredible work both in their own country and and want to come and, you know, work with everybody else to just mm-hmm. um, tackle this kind of global issue. I think it, it, it feels it feels like, you know, you know, for me personally, it's like I'm I'm a part of something that's bigger than myself. Um, and I think it's it's exciting to be a part of something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because it's always another thing that's always important when we're talking about things like this is we are doing an episode right now. This episode you're listening to is we're talking about snake conservation and we have here all on here as our snake conservation person. But obviously you are not the only person working in this. You are the only person on this episode of this podcast. <laughs> you're sort of being asked to represent the entire community of snake conservationists but that's obviously not the case and it's always good to keep in mind and to reinforce that for ourselves and for others that this is something that people are passionate about Mm -hmm. and there is a community about this uh, around this topic that people can learn about that people can get involved in and that's that's really it makes me all feel all warm and fuzzy Mm -hmm. to hear about that those kinds of initiatives. I can only imagine it's even better for you being actually part of it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, uh, being a part of these various groups, so I'm also part of the ICN snake specialist group, and hopefully through that group we'll be creating um, a snake bite mitigation task force, which will obviously focus on on mitigating snake bite. But, you know, that specific group has scientists from around the world um, and snake experts. So, you know, I'm learning kind of one thing in, in one group and then I can apply that to another group or even just share that and 
and vice versa. And I think being able to do that, being, cause I think in the past, it's, it's never really been the case where, you know, people work across these various disciplines. You know, you, you work in your silo, you focus on what you're doing and, and that's kind of it. Like you grow within that field, you know, you either become the best professor, part of various initiatives. But I think there's this global drive in, in the world at the moment to be involved in, in different projects, different initiatives, um, for the greater good. So, you know, and it's not just specific to snakes and snake conservation. You know, you'll find experts on frogs that want to be part of, you know, conservation initiatives on frogs, but also education. And I think what that's allowed us to do is really build a network where we're not just, you know, it's not just about your personal growth and your personal career, but also just contributing towards a better society. Absolutely. Yeah. Harold, I want to talk with you about snakes all day. <laughs> this has been this has been such a fun conversation. And I'm sure our audience would love to listen to us talk about snakes all day. <laughs> but um, before we wrap up, because I think we should start wrapping up our discussion, is there anything else you want to mention? Is there anything else that you want our audience to know or to think about or to keep in mind on the topic of snake conservation? Um, just, you know, I think the one message that I would like to tell anyone listening to this podcast and anyone that ever will listen to this podcast is that just learn one cool thing about snakes. You know, if after you listen to this podcast, you just go research something interesting about snakes, just go do yourself a favor and, and just learn about one interesting thing about snakes. I promise you won't be disappointed. And your curiosity will probably lead you to more and more interesting facts about snakes. Absolutely. That's, that's great advice. Yes. Love it. One more question for you, Hiral. Do you have a favorite snake species? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I really don't like this question. Um, right? no, that's, no that, favorites. So. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, that's also an acceptable yes. answer is no, yeah. of course there's, there's tons of great snakes. Well, it's, I, I <laughs> thought about that earlier, uh, of like, oh, that's probably, that's probably a question that we'll, we'll, we should bring up, you know, just to have that conversation. And then I had a moment of like, do I have a favorite snake? Cause I don't, I don't really even have a, I have a couple that I often think of a couple favorite North American yeah. snakes. Uh, that typically come up. I'll typically mention bull snakes because mm-hmm. I think they're so cool. Pituophis. Uh green snakes, Ophiodries, such pretty snakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't have an answer to that question either. Yeah, I definitely yeah. have snakes that rank high for me, but there's I don't know, there's just so many, so it's hard to just be like, yeah, no, this <laughs> one's obviously. Yeah, I mean, I, I will mention one snake because I just think it's super cool, and that's the spider tail snake. Yes. And if yeah. if if the listeners have not heard about the snake, just Google it and go find out about this really cool snake. And I mean, it's just one of the interesting snakes out there that, you know, does this really interesting behavior, exhibits this interesting behavior. And that's another reason why snakes are just very, very cool. Well, and you mentioned one of my all-time favorites earlier, the stiletto. Yeah. I learned about that in a... If I remember right, it was a documentary. I don't remember if it was a series or just a documentary uh, that I saw late at night in some hotel, like just turned on the TV and was like, oh, I guess we're watching this about different kinds of venoms. But it was specifically stories of different people who had been stung slash bitten by various 
animals and it was cool because it had like a platypus on there so it was that accounts of a person who got hit by a male platypus and envenomated and envenomated and talking about what that experience was actually like and so it was it was personal stories for each one and one of them was a stiletto snake and that was the first time i learned about them and it stuck in my memory because it was it was a bit grandiose in the way they were like showing everything to make it a little scary so it stuck in my brain parts of that but also just they were like, oh, yeah, their fangs go sideways. And I was like, stop everything. <laughs> Can we just talk about that for the rest of this show? What? That's awesome. Well, one of the things that the listeners are not privy to in this conversation is my and Will's <laughs> nonverbal, sometimes verbal, but just general reaction to hearing Harold talk about what kinds of snakes you're working with and you're studying. And I brought this up early on. We work in North America and are, we have gone on herping trips in North yeah. America and we have met herpetologists from North America, which means that there's a pretty narrow group of snakes that we are typically hearing about. So every time you would mention like cobras or mambas or stiletto snakes, we're sitting here like, oh, this is so cool. We never get to hear people talk about these snakes. Right. <laughs> it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And, and so for me, like I've, uh, I've been to two world congresses of herpetology conferences. And, um, that's where, you know, I've pretty much learned about most of the global herbs and, and the exciting stuff on snakes that goes on globally. And I think that's, it's such an exciting way to learn about animals and snakes. It's, it's, um, that you wouldn't be exposed to on a normal basis because, I think, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. There's just such a huge diversity in snake, of snakes in, mm -hmm. on the planet that, um, you can only know so much. But like, that's why I said, you know, like Google something interesting about snakes. Trust me, you'll find something interesting. Yeah. So listeners go look up stiletto snakes or spider tail snakes or boom slangs yeah. or any pick a snake name we've mentioned this episode and go take a Google. Another thing you can take a Google about, <laughs> I've, got, I've, I've made up a phrase, yep, yep. is in the episode description, we'll put a bunch of links to these organizations that we've been talking about. So we'll put a link to the Save the Snakes website. Uh, here all, uh, if there are places where people can find you on the internet, we will get that information from you and we'll put that in the, uh, the episode description as well. So people can not only learn more about snakes, but can learn more about snake conservation efforts and can learn more about our guest for this episode if you'd like to. Uh, Hiral, you've also been on some other podcasts, I know. Yes. Uh, one of the famous ones is the Squamates podcast. Also an exciting herpetology podcast. And then, yeah, I've done a few others. Um, if you're interested, you can check out the, the Women in Evolution and Ecology podcast that talks about scientists, well, women scientists from around the world that work in ecology and evolution. And then um, just quite recently, I did an interesting episode for podcast recording for BBC World Radio, which focused on venomous snakes. So, yeah, uh, but you'll find all of these on, on my website. So I'll share that in, in the podcast description. Fantastic. Cool. Oh, man, I've never been more reluctant to end an episode. Right. Stop I, talking about snakes. That's, that's exactly that's the problem. <laughs> Just wait till we record this Crocs one. Yeah, no. Yeah, we're gonna have to pull Will away from it too. Harold, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for this. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, it's been really fascinating talking to you. 
Thank you so much for having me. I've loved sharing um, information about my work, and I hope people have learned a little bit more about why snakes are important. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you want to continue engaging with snake stuff, check out our other Snake Month things we've been doing. You can find things like that on our social media, on our Discord, and so on. If you haven't checked out our cool croc stuff that we did last month in June, check that out too. We did an episode just like this, but about croc conservation. This episode is also being released on World Snake Day, July 16th. So you can check out, we'll put that link in the description as well for the (laughs) World Snake Day. Uh, I don't know if they have an official page. I know there are many different pages, but it is World Snake Day, which is the whole reason we chose to do Snake Month in July in the first place. Yep. So check all that stuff out. Keep listening for more cool stuff. Keep listening to our podcast. Check out here all stuff. Go, uh, don't go hug a snake, but go like say nice things in a snake's direction. And two finger touch on the back. (laughs) No, don't do that. If it's a person holding it, (laughs) allowing you to do so. (laughs) Go blow a kiss to a snake from a safe distance. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Thank you one more time here all for joining us. Thanks a lot, guys. Happy Snake Month, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Happy Snake Month. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.